You are listening to the Missions History Podcast, brought to you by the International Mission Board. On this episode, hosts David Brady and Scott Peterson discuss a recently released book authored by David Brady. Not Forgotten, Inspiring Missionary Pioneers tells the stories of 18 missionaries over a couple of centuries and many continents. Listen in as they discuss the reasoning behind sharing the stories of these men and women who gave their all for the sake of the gospel. Welcome to Missions History Podcast, MHP, a ministry of the International Mission Board. I'm Scott Peterson, and today our co-host David Brady will be sharing with us some insights and some lessons learned from his new work, Not Forgotten, Inspiring Missionary Pioneers. So David, uh, glad to have you here focusing on your work as opposed to uh, someone else's today. Roles are reversed here a little bit. That's right, Scott, and thank you so much for um, just working with me on this podcast. You and I have had a great time, um, and it's just really exciting. And, of course, we've had a, a podcast where we talked about an article you wrote on Sally Holmes, and and uh, I'm looking forward to talking about this uh, new book, Not Forgotten. Now, I'm excited. I just received my copy this week, and while I haven't had a chance to read through it based on some other commitments, I've read a, a portion of it, and I, I don't want to put it down every time I pick it up. Um, so this, uh, for to give our listeners an idea, this is a book that covers uh, 18 individuals or couples um, who have served around the world. And David, why don't you tell us a little bit about what got you interested in doing a, a work of this nature? Well, um, Scott, so I, I am um, the son of missionary parents. My parents served with uh, the then Foreign Mission Board for 40 years. Uh, they were in the Caribbean, um, and so I was born in Guyana, South America, raised in Belize, Central America, and so obviously I've always been in this world, uh, the missions world, and um, love and appreciate my parents and the work that they uh, that they did. Um, as a pastor now for 29 years, I've always been interested in church history, and so I've always had an interest in figuring out how to take church history from big books that only you know a handful of people are going to read and translate it in various ways so that um, you know just the average church person could enjoy it and benefit from it. And so that's kind of um, I've been in that realm, but it's only been in the last few years that I've really gotten interested specifically in Southern Baptist missions history. Tell us a little bit before we get into the book. You mentioned that you were grew up in Guyana. And so talk to us a little bit about your your life, your background, experience there, um, and how you met your wife. Tell us a little bit about sure. your family, too. Yeah. So um, as you said, I, I was born in Guyana, South America, um, 1968. That's my parents had gone in 62. I have an older brother and sister. And um, in about 1975, when my parents went on furlough, they were not allowed to go back. Um uh, to Guyana. There was a communist government and a number of things happened that they just were not granted a, a visa to return to the country. So um, my parents were at that time almost, uh, they were in their late 40s and just having to figure out what do we do? And so uh, the board approached them about beginning Baptist work in Belize, which was still a colony of Great Britain at that point in Central America. 
And so we went there. Um, I was nine when we entered the country. So grew up in Belize. That's a lot of my memories are from there all the way through high school. And um, it was just, it was really a blessing to see that the work that my parents started be a part of it from the ground up. Um, I, my my own spiritual pilgrimage I was blessed as far as just knowing the Lord, but really as a teenager began to walk away from that. Um, but God in his providence, as I came back to college, he began to draw me back to himself. And particularly, uh, he did that through meeting of uh, a young uh, Christian Baptist girl from Winston-Salem, North Carolina, Calvary Baptist Church. And um, she uh, went to the same school I did, and we met, and she just really helped me to to just be able to express some of the doubts and confusion I had, but she expressed that that her confidence in Christ and the scripture. And it was it was just really powerful influence on my life. Uh, she's now we just celebrated last week twenty nine years of marriage. Congratulations! Thank you. And we um, I was married on a Saturday, but the Sunday before, in the same week, I was ordained. So I've been ordained twenty nine years and been uh, pastoring that that during that time. And uh, we've so marriage and and ministry have gone together. Pastored a number of different churches. About ten years ago, we started. Christ Community Church in Mount Airy, and um, that's that's where we are ministering now. And um, we live on a farm uh, out Shadowlands, Shadowlands right? Farm. So we're C.S. Lewis fans, and uh, we got a bunch of animals. And we've lived out there for a long time, but we really love sort of the country life and the animals, and and uh, that's been sort of uh, the thing that God has used to to kind of give us a unique ministry, particularly to animal lovers and and to people who don't know Christ. So. You've talked about your background, about getting interested in in missionary stories. Obviously, growing up as an MK uh, was part of your, your formative years there and, and in interest. Um, since you are pastoring and you did your, your doctorate on missionary biography and using that in churches. And it's a very good one. You did your doctorate at Gordon-Conwell. Gordon-Conwell, right. right. Um, what else may have led to a, finally a decision mm-hmm. to write this book? Right. So uh, we have a training center for our Southern Baptist missionaries, and I'd been invited a number of times to speak to groups at, at that center. And um, there's a wall there's a wall there with uh, names of missionary personnel that have died during their years of service. And um, I remember looking at that wall, and I mean, it's it's kind of stunning. If you'll stop and begin to read the names, and you'll see sometimes um, there's, there's a person on there by the name of Helena Bond. She was 19 when she died. Uh, as a as a missionary, I mean, there there are people, so many of them in their twenties, and they they die all over the world. But I began to realize I didn't know who these people were. I mean, I knew a few stories, but most of them I had no clue. And it was really kind of overwhelming to me to think all these people died in service of Jesus Christ, and here I am, I don't know who they are. So it kind of got me on a little bit of a quest. There was one. Um, uh, name that um, I ran across on the wall, and then I ran across in a book by Calvin Parker, who wrote about the the history of of Southern Baptist work in Japan. Right. And uh, the name of this lady was Sarah Rohr, and um, Sarah and her husband John Rohr, along with um, 
um, the Bonds, they died in uh, a ship that they were headed to the mission field, and the ship was lost at sea. But before she left, her mother, she was the only child. She was Her mother didn't want her to go. Her mother pled with Sarah, please don't leave me. Um, and Sarah looked at her mother and said, Mother, with the exception of parting from you, this is the happiest day of my life. And if we should be lost at sea, death will find us in the path of duty. Now, I was sitting at the library out at that training center when I saw that, which is, you know, not too far away from that wall. But I, at that moment, Scott, just tears were just pouring down my face. I'd never heard of this, been a Southern Baptist my whole life. I'd never heard of Sarah Rohr. And when I heard that kind of faith, I said, a woman like that cannot be forgotten. And that's how the title of the book, Not Forgotten, came. And um, I went back to the wall, and uh, my brother was standing there, and I told him that story. And I said, I've got to write a book about these people. And so that began sort of a, a two-year quest um, with the help of archives, of, of which you're, you're the overseer of that, that work. Um, I, I began to get missionary correspondence and began to just sort of piece together some missionary stories that I thought that needed to be retold. There are many more than I tell in the book, but I picked the ones that uh, that I gravitated toward and, and could piece together. Well, I'm, I'm glad you bring that up, because I know when we had some initial conversations about your book, yes. we talked about very brief two-page profiles and to right. do maybe even as many as 52, right. one for each week of the year, because right. your your desire was to have these stories motivate and right. mobilize people and the yeah. idea of a devotional type of approach. But you ended up writing a book of only 18 right. chapters or, or individuals. What happened there? A couple things happen. One is, is when you, in order to be able to even write a few pages about somebody, you have to almost learn everything about them. Right. And so by the time you've invested all that time, you're like, really two pages just does is not adequate. In fact, if you if you read the book, you'll see some of my chapters like the Sarah Rort, they're very short because I began writing that way with a more of a devotional style, but I realized it it would take, you know, each person would take a month to research and to begin getting together sometimes even two months. And with that, it, it really wasn't um something that you could do. I think maybe people building on that could take and do shorter things. So I guess it, the approach began to change. And um, I think there's there's more books to be written. But I think there are a number, uh, d several dozen, just absolutely uh, foundational stories that need to be in almost the 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 vocabulary of every Southern Baptist. I mean, there's some in there uh, that that don't um, that don't make it in the, in there. But uh, like um, the story of Mrs. David, who dies off the coast of Africa, and she says, "Never give up Africa." You know, these those are the right. kind of stories that need to be just uh, a part of the air of our Southern Baptist culture. They were at certain times, but but uh, my passion is to see those revived. And and I've picked uh, 18 that I think are, are special. Well, and that's that was one thing I wanted to ask you about. What 
drew you to these particular 18? It was a little bit of a number of factors coming in. When I began to think about it, one thing I wanted to show is that Southern Baptist missionaries are not monolithic, that they are, they're men, they're women, they've served around all over the world, and they've even had different kinds of ministries, though ultimately they were all evangelists and all wanting to see churches, but sometimes they'd go as a doctor or uh, one person in this book was a ventriloquist. I mean, and so I wanted to have, just to show a little bit of the spectrum of Southern Baptist missions. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you the truth. I could have written that book easily. You could write 10 books just on incredible Southern Baptist female missionaries. Uh, there's just so many stories. And so um, I think I have five or so of those 18 that focus on them, but many of them in there, um, the wife is also just a really prominent player. So uh, I wanted to kind of convey that spectrum. That was where I started. But then to, to just be kind of candid about it, sometimes you get in and there's just not enough material about somebody. So you may want to dig more. There's just not enough. The other thing I found is some people's handwriting, because these these are letters from, you know, a long, long time ago. I couldn't read it. Right. So I just gave up. I said, I know there's a story here, but I can't do it. Well, chapter two focuses on uh, Samuel Clopton, and that is one of the chapters that I have read. And there were a lot of firsts involved with him. Uh, He was the first missionary. What are some of the other firsts with Samuel Clopton that you can tell us about? Well, first with Samuel Clopton. Um. So he also is the first one to have a child on the field. So our first MK. First MK. Um, we we um, had some transfer missionaries. We had the Shucks who, uh, he had some children. His wife had died. But as far as being born into a Southern Baptist family, um, uh, the Samuel Clopton Jr. was the first. Um you know, another thing that I, I think uh, about Sa- the the Cloptons, they also went out with another family, the Piercys. Um, they were, I think this is important to note, we have always seen that missionaries are going to function best in a team, that you need that team. And, um, and they actually, I mean, when I say that, the reality is the hardest thing for missionaries is to function with a team. But at the same time, they need that team. And this team was a great one to look back to. In your chapters, another first is that Samuel Clopton was our, the first missionary, Southern Baptist missionary, to die on the field. Well, that's is that right. right? Yeah, and you bring out the reaction of the, the Percy's yeah. in regards to that and point out the closeness of their relationship and the teamwork that was evident there. And I really appreciate that in the chapter there with that, regardless of the fact that the Cloptons were the first, or Samuel Clopton was the first appointed missionary. He's not the first chapter in your book. Right, he's not. There's a guy named John Lake, yeah. and I'm fascinated by his story. Yeah, me too. Um, but uh, without giving too much away, why did you put John Lake first? You know, the reason I ended up putting John Lake first is because the story just blew me away. And I, one of the things I like, this is just me about history— I love if I can take a story that happened a really long time ago, and and I, I kind of view being uh, sort of a um, just an amateur historian, I view it like being a detective. And so I'm always pulling stuff and looking for pieces. And if I can find where a story is today, 
If I can find that connection, it just does something in my mind and heart. It's just, it's thrilling to me. And I did a lot of work on this. God opened a lot of doors. I thought it was a fabulous story. It was, to me, I'd never heard of the guy a couple years ago. And to, to realize what he had done and how the story in God's providence has continued is why I put him in the book. So tell us, who is John Lake? What is his background? Yeah, so a couple of things struck me. Um, my my dad's side of the family is all from South Carolina. So John Lake, he's from uh, Edgefield there in South Carolina. I pastored in Charleston. Um, we had, um, uh, uh, you know, obviously a lot of of. Uh, students that would come, and some of them were from the Citadel. Well, John Lake was a, a, a graduate of the Citadel, and I thought that was that was kind of a unique connection right. with him. Uh, Edgefield is also important because that's where the William Bullen Johnson, the first president of the Southern Baptist Convention, he was from Edgefield. Luther Rice dies near Edgefield. So in my mind, just all kind of historical connections were going off. John Lake goes to China not as a Southern Baptist missionary. He was impacted by a movement known as the Student Volunteer Movement. Okay. And um, Dwight L. Moody was very important in, in his conversion and call to, to, to ministry. He also read a book by about Father Damien, The Lepers of Molokai. And that's where all of the lepers would basically be quarantined on the island of Molokai. So there were a lot of factors. I, I, my parents are Southern Baptist missionaries, but I went to a Jesuit high school, so I've always just kind of been fascinated with that. So I saw a lot of kind of connections with John Lake. He goes to China, curiously enough, because of his connection with the student volunteer movement, working with the YMCA. And that was actually quite a big thing. He was working with sailors in the southern city of Canton, um, which is now Guangzhou. And uh, it was there that he came in contact with one of our most significant missionaries by the name of Rosewell Graves. And, is um, that Rosewell or Roswell? Well, yeah, don't get me started <laughs> here. We have gone around and around. I'm sticking with Rosewell. I agree. Yeah, we're going to go with Roswell. If it but, was good enough for Tupper, it's good it's, enough for it's, me. That's right? right. And if he signs it, R-O-S-E-W-E-L-L. -E I, I guess that's, that's a clue, right? That's a clue. So we'll go with that. He then becomes a Southern Baptist missionary in the early, the early years of the 20th century. He works for almost 20 years in the delta south of the Pearl River. Okay. It's in southern Guangdong um, province. It was sort of a country ministry. He was based in Canton, but would go out there. He started out as a single missionary. He married. His wife died within a year. He met another Southern Baptist missionary, Carrie Bostick. Um, they worked together, basically just doing general evangelism. They would travel around these churches in that, in that area. They do that for many years. But, but John Lake he became uh, connected. He would see that uh, for all of the people and all of the needs, there was one group of people who were really at the bottom of the totem pole out in that, that rural area, and they were the lepers. And these lepers were forced out of every village. People were, were fearful of being contaminated, you know, that it was, they would get sick themselves. And so they would force these people. And anytime any sort of disease would happen, they would get pushed further. And so they would live out in... Uh, the most desolate, um, uh, poverty-stricken conditions. And John's heart, he remembered reading the lepers of Molokai. He remembered the New Testament where Jesus had such a ministry with lepers. And his heart just went out 
to those people, and that's going to begin a shift in his ministry. And so he he decides to do something about these lepers in China, right? What is that? One of the things they asked him, the lepers said to him, they said, you know, we, are, we struggle to even have enough to eat. If you could take us and move us, help us to move as a group to a place where we could either be near a river or somewhere where we could fish, then we could at least have a way to provide food for ourselves and we could sell some of the extra. And um, so he told this to one of his Chinese uh, friends, and the Chinese friend said, no, 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 you don't need to put them near a river. He says, because people are going to always be uh, scared of them. Right. And he says, have you thought about an island? There are lots of islands. And so that began John Lake saying, maybe I could actually have a safe uh, place for these lepers where we could have a hospital, we could have a, a pharmacy. Uh, they called it a dispensary, um, a church where we could minister in a safe environment to lepers. So he conducts a survey, and this yep. was something that we corresponded about or spoke on the phone about at one point. Right. Uh, and you had found a picture of an instrument he used to conduct the survey, right. and it was another first for Southern Baptist missionaries. What was that? In about 1920, I don't have the exact date in front of me, but he— um, is in Macau, right there on the coast of the South China Sea. And there is a new um, mode of transportation that's just entered Macau. Now, remember, we've just finished World War I, and there's a lot of salvage, you know, leftover military planes being sold. The French were fabulous uh, at flying, you know, flying aces. A Frenchman, um, uh, Captain Rucot had moved to Macau, had bought some salvage planes. These are biplanes. You'd know more about exactly what they were. But he wants to set up a, a, um, a route between Hong Kong and Macau. And it only lasts for a couple of years. It just wasn't economically feasible at that right. time. But one of the first flights of Captain Rucot John Lake gets on that airplane and basically hires him to take him on an aerial tour of the South China Sea looking for a place where he could have a home for the leopard. So in a sense, John Lake was the first Southern Baptist missionary aviator. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the I, I put in there, and I'm kind of cautious about it, I put, you know, he is in one of the earliest recorded flights. The reason I say that is, there may be somebody who was a Southern Baptist missionary flown before. I doubt it. And the reason I doubt it is, is well, one, the time frame. But two, he writes back uh, to the head of the Foreign Mission Board, Franklin Love, James Franklin Love. And he says, I've done this. I've gone on an airplane. And Franklin Love basically sends back and says, you're crazy. Who would ever get in one of those things? <laughs> Nobody would ever fly. I wouldn't do it. So it was really considered just so fringe, you know, so radical to do that at that point. And of course, now, you know, the the, the leadership of the board circle the, the globe monthly, you know, I mean, right. it's just not a strange thing. So he finds an island, right? right? What's the name of that island? So Tell the name of the island is Tai Kam. And um, it, it, it was a long process. It actually took um, over a year of looking. And he went out on naval vessels. Chinese government provided him that. Eventually, he finds this island. Uh, it's much larger than he thought. It's a very mountainous island. Um, it's not too far from the, the mainland. 
but it's with it's within sight of of Shangchuang, which is the island where uh, Francis Xavier, who was trying to enter China uh, with uh, Catholic Christianity, where he died. And um, but that island, um, he found it, and a Chinese Christian government official actually bought the island for him. What there, wasn't there a problem with the island, though? Well, there was a problem with the island. That's right. So it mentioned that there's a, a mountain range in the middle of the island, and there was a, a cove where he wanted to basically begin this colony for the lepers. But on the other side of the island, there was a, a village of pirates. And um, the, the South China Sea was, was infested with pirates on the mainland, on the islands. And it was a very, very serious issue. And John Lake, I, I love this about him. He he was trying to think, well, we can't go to this island because there's pirates there. You know, I mean, this is never going to work. But he went straight to the pirates and began to talk to them, tell them what he wanted to do. He didn't hide from them. He didn't try to do it away from them. And in just a, you know, God really inspired him in that moment. He hired the pirates to build the leper colony for him. He got some people who actually were skilled in construction, who trained the pirates, and they actually were the ones who were the laborers. Well, in your chapter, you you talk, you tell the rest of the story about what happened to this leper colony during World War II, and right. you mentioned after World War II another missionary who you don't have a chapter on about right. by the name of Rex Ray. Right. And Rex wrote a, a book, yes, an, an autobiographical account, and he is a character in his own oh, right. Oh, you're right. Cool. There are lots of fascinating stories there. Isn't it called Cowboy of Kwangji? It is. Yeah. And it's a it's not a very big book, right. but and it's a fast read. But he tells a story about going into Taikam after the war to rebuild right. it. Yeah. And these pirates are still there. They're still there. Um, many of the lepers, and, and a sad story you share in the book, don't manage to make it through the Japanese uh, occupation, but the pirates do somehow. Right, right. And they come over and they visit, and he tells this really humorous story about them piling up their weapons yeah. and eating a meal with him as yeah. he's there to rebuild this hospital and leper colony there, and he takes pictures. Rex Ray was a photographer. Yeah took a camera with him everywhere he went and he, they take pictures of him with these pirates and these these their weapons and so that's a that's a recommendation for our listeners to read that book if they can find a copy of it but um, tell us about Lu Fu yeah so I, as I mentioned one of the things that I love about history is being able to figure out the connections between the past and the present and um, I was um, born, as we mentioned earlier, in Guyana in 1968. My parents had gone there as Southern Baptist missionaries to begin Southern Baptist work in 1962. And they were told they really couldn't do it unless they Southern Baptists had already been there. And um, my dad said, I know we've never been here. You know, I am the first Southern Baptist missionary to come here. Um, but he was speaking with a lawyer who said, you know what, let me just go check our official records. So the guy goes, the lawyer goes, checks the records, and he finds that, lo and behold, Southern Baptists are already an approved denomination in British Guiana. At that Wait point. a minute. You mean they were registered already? They were registered already. And that's the mystery that I tried to unravel. Um, and... Um, that's that's really one of the stories that um, I'm not done with yet. Um, I've I've just it, it's really a fascinating story. 
But essentially, what my dad did come to find out is that Baptists had been there, but they were from China. And um, so they knew that story, but I really wanted to see, could I figure out who these people were? And in God's providence, um, just some, you know, you'll get a name and you'll kind of keep tracking it down. So I learned that um, one of our missionaries in South China, we mentioned him already, Rosewell Graves, that he wrote about that Chinese believer who first went in um, the early 1860s to South America, what was then Demerara, British Guiana. And um, that when I got that connection, I said, you know what? Uh, it's going to be Graves' correspondence that's going to help me crack this code. So essentially, we had um, Graves knew the man, but we had an, a missionary who had gone just a little earlier than Graves to South China by the name of Charles Galliard. And you you have a chapter on Charles Galliard Yeah, well, I have right? a chapter. So I, that's one of the things I try to do. A lot of the stories are independent, standalone But the Charles Galliard, Lou Fook, Otis Brady story is to show you that God is really the master strategist. He is the, it's his mission and he is weaving together. We're we're threads in this incredible tapestry uh, that he's uh, weaving to win the world. And so Charles Galliard died in 1862 in um, uh, a typhoon there in uh, South China, Uh, but And one of his last statements was, writing back to the board in the Civil War, they thought they were going to bring all the missionaries home. He said, don't bring me home. Don't bring me home. He said, even if you have to cut my pay, leave me here. He said, because, he said, "Uh, I want, when I die, I want to take an army of people with me to heaven. And it wasn't long after that that he he was killed. His wife and uh, baby infant son were watching when the timbers of the house fell on him and And he was crushed. And that prayer, it seems like it never went anywhere. Well, again, not long before he died, he baptized a young, a teenage boy by the name of Lou Fook. Lou um, had a heart for reaching his own people, but he he was a strategist. He said, you know what? I think my people will be more open to the gospel in another land. So this was the point when the British were had a system of indentured labor, and they would basically contract people in India and in South China to go and work the cane fields of South America uh, and the Caribbean because slavery had been abolished already in the British Empire. And Lu said, I'm going to, and this was the term in Chinese, I'm going to sell myself as a pig in order to win my countrymen for Jesus Christ. And so he voluntarily entered this. He didn't need to, but he went into this system, went to Guyana. He led 200 Chinese people to faith. They became, they established four Chinese Baptist churches. And when they registered with the government, they registered as Southern Baptist Convention USA. And that because they'd been led, they had been led to Christ through a Southern Baptist missionary. And so it's incredible. And exactly 100 years later, when my dad stands there, he did not know that God had prepared uh, an open door for him because the the lawyer comes back and says, is this you, Southern Baptist uh, Convention USA? And he said, that's us. 
And um, and so uh, God prepared that. And this is how I think. Um, my brother was the first convert. He, he was eight years old. He was the first convert of my parents' ministry there in Guyana. Um, I was born uh, um, a few years later, and when I was five, right before we left Guyana, I trusted Christ as my Savior. What I did not know is that I am an answer to Charles Galliard's dying prayer that he wants to take an army of people to heaven with him. Is in a sense, you could say that Lou Fook was the first missionary to a diaspora group. That's right. He was. And and also, you know, it, when we try to see what the future holds for missions, um, I, I think that Lou Fook is also sort of the, the beginning of understanding that missions aren't from the West to everywhere else or from America to everywhere else. They're from everywhere to everywhere. And, um, you know, one of my prayers is, is that, yes, that we here in the United States would just continue and increase in our international missions effort. But reality says that, that really the next century and, and beyond is going to be people like Lou Fook that, 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 and so I entitle the chapter on Lou Fook that he's the morning star of the Chinese missionary movement, because though there were some Chinese people that uh, became Christians early and would minister within the bounds of China, uh, he was he was really, if not the first, one of the first people to actually travel half a world away. Um, and and not only did he minister to Chinese, but his congregations began to minister to Amerindians, so so Native Americans living in the interior of British Guiana, and um, they're actually they formed a church of Amerindians on the uh, the border with Brazil. So they were ministering to the Chinese diaspora. They were sending money back to Canton. They sent pastors back to Canton. And they were also trying to reach indigenous peoples in Guyana. So to me, I think Lufuk is one of the most important stories in the book because he's the future of mission. So David, as I look at the chapters here of the the table of contents of many of the names, and um, there's some here that I'm more familiar with than others, and some I would consider maybe my favorites, but do you have, other than your father, of course, do you have a, a favorite? Yeah, I, I do. I, you know, there, and probably it's a favorite in this category and a favorite in that category. I could go on and on, but you know, I, I, I saved in this book, the best for last. And the last chapter is Lula Wilden. And, um, uh, you know, some of the people who read this book early on, some, some family and friends who were, uh, in and just trying to help me think through things and helping me edit the book, um, we all came to consensus that Lula Wilden is the hidden jewel in the book. She is actually the first MK, and I'm going to qualify this in a second. She's <laughs> the first MK to become a missionary. Now, at archives, they quickly go, well, what about Anna Hartwell? And this is the difference. Anna Hartwell is the first MK who was born on the mission field to become to become a missionary in her own right. But Lula Wilden, her dad, um, was a Bayfield Wilden. They were uh, Charlestonians out of the historic First Baptist Church. Her dad was pastoring in Camden, South Carolina. And they went um, to South China, to Canton. Um, and um, his her mom was named Eliza Jane. She died, and curiously enough, she is buried right beside Samuel Clopton. 
um, there in the middle of a little island in the Pearl River there, which Samuel Clopton, our first missionary, and um, Bayfield uh, had three little children, so he had to come back to America. He remarries, he goes back, and his second wife loses her sight, so he has to come back to America. He ends up pastoring. By the way, he pastors a church in Washington, Georgia, which he is not the direct, but he is a later successor of H.A. Tupper, the church that uh, that Tupper pastored, who's also another Charlestonian. And But the thing about Lula, so she grows up uh, an MK, her mom has died, um, her stepmother is blind, um, and uh, she just, it kind of is a rough growing up back here in America. She just had that brief time at, there in South China. Um, but as a young woman at, at Greenville Women's College, she began to sense God might be calling me to missions. She just loved the gospel, and she really loved the gospel of Jesus. She just, she, she didn't have to be convinced it was good news. She knew it was good news. Um, she had a sister named Jumel, and Jumel married a, a young man who was um, interested in being a mission, uh, a missionary. So Jumel and her husband were going to go to South China. And Lula had been writing to the board. It's so, it so amazing. She'd write, um, uh, first of all, to James Taylor. Right. She'd write him, and she would enclose money for some mission project, right? And then she'd write him a letter, and she said, I want to give this money. She said, but I really would like to give myself to be a missionary. But if you guys can't send me as a single missionary, then please take this money and let some other person have the highest privilege possible to a human being, which is to tell people the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, she had gone as a young child and it had taken a, they had to go all the way around South America in the sailing vessel. But she left from the commissioning in Baltimore. She went with um, Rosewell Graves, his second wife, which was Jane Norris Graves, and then her sister, Jumel, and her husband. And they took a train across to San Francisco, and then they uh, went from there to, to China. And one of the things that's uh, interesting about her, she also had on the ship Edmonia, Green, uh, Edmonia Moon was on the ship as well. And Edmonia is the sister of Lottie Moon. Right? Ed Edmonia is the sister of Lottie. And so um, though Lula was appointed a little earlier than Edmonia, those were Edmonia and um, Lula were two of the earliest single missionaries. And in fact, Lula is the first single missionary to have a full career. Right. She's the first. And of course, the year after that, Lottie will come. But you know, the, the thing about um, Lula is that I just am struck by is her incredible compassion. It's just striking um, how compassionate she 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 was. Um, she got to China. She was you know struggling to learn the language. The first person she led to Christ was a a woman who was living in a little basically a uh, little shack, a little a little tiny hovel, and um, and and Lula was of all of our missionaries, her overwhelming ministry. What she did for forty years was house-to-house -house evangelism or boat-to-boat -boat evangelism, which we can talk about. But she just wanted people to hear the gospel. Why don't you tell us what you mean by boat-to-boat -boat evangelism? And then there is another ministry that she's involved in that I, I find fascinating, particularly from the time period, but is very relevant for today. So 
Let's talk first about the boat-to-boat evangelism. She was there in South China, the Pearl River running through Canton, and she saw that there, the, the river was filled with boats. And these boats, a lot of them not much bigger than a rowboat, maybe a little covering over the top. They would be um, hitched together, these boats just piled out in this river. And there was an entire class of people that lived on those boats, many of them never even stepping foot on dry land. They were some of the poorest people uh, in that, that region, and nobody was ministering. And particularly during the day, if some of the men would come uh, uh, um, to the banks to either sell fish or do other kinds of, of work, the women were the ones who would always be secluded on the boats, living sometimes their whole lives on these little tiny boats. And Lulid saw them and said, they don't have the gospel. And so she began a ministry of going and sharing the gospel to these women. And so she led many, many boat women to faith in Christ. Is there anyone else that as you were writing and researching, anything that just kind of shocked you or surprised you as you were writing? Yeah, you know, I think probably the most shocking story in the book um, for me um, was the story of George Lacey. Mm. I'd never heard of George Lacey. And um, then I heard that there was a seminary in southern Mexico in Oaxaca named Seminario Lacey. And I was like, what's the connection here? Why did they name their seminary after this guy, a Southern Baptist missionary? I asked some people. They didn't know. So anyways, began to do a little bit of digging. And probably in one of the most poignant stories in Southern Baptist uh, missions is the story of, uh, of, of George and, and, and Minnie Lacey. And um, we had an, another episode with uh, Don Camadiner where he told a little bit of that right. story. But um, essentially, they were at um, a ministry in Saltillo, Mexico, working at the Madero Institute, which is a school for girls. And um, they had just been settled in just over a year in Mexico. Uh, they'd had a child that had been born on the field. They already had four. So they had five children. And um, it was Christmas break. They lived in the middle of the school. All of the students were gone except for mom and dad and their own five kids. And um, they, one of their children gets sick 15 hours later. That child dies. And 15 days later, all five children had died of scarlet fever. All five children. All five children. 15 had, days. In 15 days, they lost all five children. Two died in Saltillo. Three died on the train with many headed back to Arkansas. They're from El Dorado, Arkansas, and they were headed back to El Dorado. And somewhere along the line, she had to get off the train by herself because her husband was trying to close things up in Saltillo. She had to bury all three of her daughters there on the side of the tracks, um, headed back to Arkansas. And so did the did the Lacys leave the field? Well, you know, that's that's that would be what I would think anybody would would imagine, you know, that uh, and in fact, George, when he got there, they they went back to the spot where the where the three were buried. And he looked at and he said, Minnie, you know, uh, we've we've given our, our five children. I guess we just need to to just stay here in America. We just need to we can't go back. And she looked at him. And she said, George, she said, we've given our five children now. We go back to Mexico and we give our lives. Wow. Such story of 
of tragedy, but out, out of that tragedy, just a life of service and ministry. Well, I feel like I'm at the point in the in the book of Hebrews where the author of Hebrews says, time does not allow for us to tell the stories of those who have suffered and served. And, and that's kind of where I feel we are here in this. But David, anything else, anyone else that you just, a story that you just, you're dying to tell from your book, um, or do we just want to say, go out and buy it and read it? Yeah, you know, I think the thing about my book is is that there's just so many more stories to be told. All I've done is is what I could do, and I I I hope it's going to be an encouragement to people. But more importantly, I hope it'll be an inspiration to people, like you said, to go out to be better servants of Christ, to have a desire to be missionaries. I think this would be a great thing for teenagers. It's not long stories. Right. You could read this. They're 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 simple. They're not. Uh, I mean, I try to be historically accurate. There are a lot of quotes because, in my opinion, the best part of the book is reading what these missionaries had to say, not what I have to say about them. They're they're incredible people. But I think the, the best stories have yet to be lived and have yet to be told. And that's, that's both your passion and my passion. We're not interested in history just to be antiquarians, just to be, you know, people who are, who are interested in the past. We really want to see this to inspire, encourage, enlighten people. Uh, you always say the first thing that history should do is create doxology in our hearts that we want to praise God for all of his works. But then it also has sort of, we've seen it, almost every person we've interviewed, uh, they said that some missionary or missionary biography had an impact on their life. And I wanted to put it in bite-sized um, chapters that people could get into. I hope you'll want to learn more about them and read more. And so, David, I want to thank you for taking the time to research and to write. I know this has been a passion. I want to thank your wife, Jennifer, for giving you the the time giving of you to to us here even this week uh, to record some podcast episodes and uh, look forward to more i know you're not finished writing there's a forthcoming article on imb.org that you've written about rosewell graves and i look forward to reading that and uh, i'm sure we can probably twist your arm a little bit to get you to write some more stories in the future and so i want to thank you david again i want to thank our listeners for their time And so for Missions History Podcast, I am Scott Peterson with David Brady. Thank you. We'll look forward to next time. You have been listening to Missions History Podcast, a production of the International Mission Board. Join hosts David Brady and Scott Peterson each week as they discuss significant people, places, and events from the history of international missions. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. 